Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success on a great day to be inside listening to Garden Radio as we prepare for when the sun comes back out. How about that? Uh, You are uh, listening to a call-in show. Uh, Those of you who are new to Garden Success, that means call in. I'll give you a number, 979-845-5689. 979-845-5689 or by email, garden success at tamu dot edu. Garden success at tamu dot edu. Uh, with the kind of weather we're having, it kind of doesn't feel like spring had fully arrived, does it? Uh, I noticed that uh, we uh, were looking at, you know, having most of our warm season crops moving really quickly along. They were doing doing super well uh, then with this cold and the the rain and stuff like that it, it just sort of feels like we've gone backwards a little bit but don't worry uh, it's not that cold it's not that cool for our plants they'll be they'll be fine it is a little refreshing because we do know that summer's coming and when summer comes wow does it ever you know hit like a, a, br- a load of bricks with that incredible heat and humidity and stuff that's when gardening gets to be a little more of a challenge but not now uh, i wanted to talk about vegetables a little bit start off the show today we've uh, we're in the big middle of our spring planting season and so there are things like uh, tomatoes for example that it's getting a little late to successfully plant if you have a real fast variety and a real big transplant with blooms on it well it's go ahead it's you'll get something out of it but uh, we're kind of past that but it is time uh, to start thinking about our warmer season vegetables as we get into April and that would include things like okra for example okra likes the heat Uh, but once it warms up I usually start planting about mid-April my okra personally Uh, there's not a black and white line as to when you start but uh, in general soil warms up a little bit it does pretty good Uh, I've uh, got a good crop of potatoes going in the home garden too Uh, that foliage is I don't know it's better than I've noticed in the past it's just lots of foliage and that means there's a lot of leaves that are catching sunlight that are making carbohydrates that are going to give me potatoes uh, as it gets translocated down into there Uh, a little early to be digging them for sure but they're looking pretty good in the garden all my cool season crops are, are in, and your cool season crops are starting to have reached, you know, their harvest or maybe they have been in harvest for a good while. Uh, I know I've actually pulled the broccoli out already. Uh, it kind of did most of its thing, so we're not doing that. But I still have some spinach, a little bit of lettuce. Some of it's trying to bolt. Uh, and uh, the couple of root crops, carrots and some of the radishes are, are still looking pretty good out there. So in this peak season, what are the important things to do? Well, one of the important things to do is when you finish a crop, 
uh, let's say you had broccoli or cabbage or cauliflower or lettuce or spinach and you're pulling it out, go ahead and put about an inch of compost down and mix it down into the soil in that bed. Uh, that That is a, a good way to continue to keep the soil organic matter levels up uh, and to, and to uh, build the soil. And if you have a clay, it helps with the structure a lot. If you have a sand, it helps with water holding capacity. But as we transition crops, this is our opportunity. You might want to have a soil test done. You can, you can do that by going to soil testing uh, uh, at tamu.edu. Uh, the soil test lab has a form called the urban soil test. And I don't, you know, if you live in um, cut and shoot Texas or, or out in Iola or wherever, you may say, well, I'm not urban for sure. Well, urban means stuff you grow to eat and look at. Think of a, think of a farm. This is a good, this is the way I explain the difference between agriculture and horticulture in the extension office. Picture a farm out in the country with the rolling pastures and the, the reservoir ponds, uh, and there's a white picket fence around the house, uh, and inside the picket fence, that's horticulture. Outside the picket fence, that's agriculture, except when it's a commercial vegetable farm or when it maybe is a Christmas tree growing farm or, or a fruit orchard or a vineyard. You know, there, there of course, are commercial examples of horticulture, but uh, the stuff I say you grow to eat and look at, uh, that would, that's how I look at falling under the, the horticulture umbrella. We... Um, uh, in in taking care of our lawns and our gardens and things, we sometimes make the mistake of over uh, caring for them. And what I mean by that is when we fertilize, uh, we should be putting down a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. But maybe we fertilize very often or we overdo it a little bit. And when that happens, like for your lawn, for example, the lawn's going to grow faster and be greener. That's for sure. And you're going to mow more or, or if you stay on the same schedule with it growing faster, you're going to end up cutting off way more than a third of the leaf blade every time you mow, which is stressful to the grass. Uh, and the, get this, when you over fertilize with nitrogen, your lawn, your root system is less than it would be if you just gave it normal fertilization, just a moderate fertilization. Uh, the, it pushes all the top growth at the expense of the root growth. So what happens then when a few grubs come along chewing some roots or we go through a little dry spell uh, without an extensive root system, the plant's ability to take up water, uh, you know, is decreased. So the old thing of if a teaspoon is good, a tablespoon is better, that is definitely not true uh, when it comes to taking care of our lawns and our plants and, and things like that. Uh, in, the, in the vegetable garden, I was talking about transitioning. And uh, so we, do, we don't want to overdo it, but it would be good to have a soil test done, the urban test I was talking about. There's a form online at soiltesting.tamu.edu. Soil testing, one word. And... Uh, I think that I would st suggest you do the regular soil test. There is one that also includes micronutrients, which is fine to do. Uh, I use that more maybe diagnostically where something's not right and we're trying to find if something's way off in the micros, uh, which is not that common in home gardens, especially when you've been adding compost over the years because uh, you're adding micronutrients to a degree every time you do that. 
Uh, but the regular test, once you know what your soil test says in your garden, then you know how to fertilize. And I, I generalize, we all do all the time about things, and when you generalize, the, there are situations where what you're saying is untrue. For example, uh, if you talk to turf specialists, A&M and other places, you will hear that a 312 fertilizer is about right for lawns. A 312, maybe 412 ratio, like four times as much nitrogen as phosphorus and twice as much potassium as phosphorus. Well, that's a good guess when you don't know what's in somebody's soil because that's kind of how plants take up nutrients, like a 3-1-2 ratio. Uh, but if you test your garden, you may find that your phosphorus is way too low, in which case that, you know, 3-1-2, that one, the, the small amount of phosphorus is not enough. You may find out that potassium is too high or too low, or maybe magnesium is, is out of whack. And so when you're transitioning, that's the best time to add the fertilizer recommended by the soil test, the fertilizer amounts recommended by the soil test, to get your soil built up. Because phosphorus ties up in the surface of the soil. Uh, if, you, if you take, let's say you've got just a patch of lawn out there or whatever, and you fertilize every year, and let's say you used a fertilizer that had the same amount of each nutrient, like 10, 10, 10, for example, 1, 1, 1 ratio. And you did that for 10 years, and then you went down and you sampled the top inch of soil only, the second inch of soil, the third inch of soil, all that phosphorus would be in the top inch or two of soil, almost all of it. It ties up to the soil there. And so when we have the opportunity to mix the soil and to put phosphorus into the soil, uh, that is a time that we, we definitely should do that. If you were trying to change pH, there's certain situations where it's practical to change pH, but, but not all situations. That would also be something where mixing it in helps to accomplish the goals a little bit better. Uh, but yeah, it's a transition time. Well, you're listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter. And if you would like to call us, phone number is 979-845-5689. 979-845-5689. I want to talk about things going on around town. We have uh, got a lot of things. It's spring, so here we go. Uh, we, I had a notice, for those of you who are really into irises uh, and you're willing to drive, uh, the um, Waco Iris Society is having their annual show and sale. And it's at the Hampton Inn on Marketplace Drive up in Waco. But when you get into a plant society, uh, by the way, that's Saturday, April 8th. So just, just come in a couple days. Uh, when you get into a plant society, you find all kinds of varieties that you're just not going to find in the trade. They, they collect they collect things. So if you're really into irises, that might be an event uh, that you're interested in. And I'll give you some more events coming up here in just a moment. Right now, let's go to the phones and talk to Dan. Good morning, Dan, or good afternoon, I guess. Uh, thank you, Skip. Uh, I have uh, three questions for you if you have time. Okay. So feel free to kick me off if I'm taking too long. <laughs> All right. All right. First question um, is about all the little baby oak trees that are coming up okay uh should we the public be 
trying to keep those or like uh, and grow them out, or are they going to take too long to be enjoyable? Uh, what do you think about all those? Because there's a million of them everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, let me ask: uh, Are these live oaks, or are these other kinds of oaks? Uh, live oak. Live where oak. It's like okay. Three inches, three inches deep on the ground of acorns, and there's you know all the little okay baby baby ones popping up. Okay. Depending on the strain of live oak, like where its native area was, like in the hill country, our live oaks tend to root sucker a lot more than the live oaks along the Gulf Coast tend to do. Uh, but you may be seeing root suckers, in which case you know, you're not going to be able to successfully dig them and replant them. But I suspect, based on your comment about all the acorns, it's pr probably mostly um, seedlings that are coming up. So if you have a place where you want a tree and you'd like to save some money on the tree, uh, then you could dig up one of those and move it to the new location. But I wouldn't do that. It's getting a, it's getting kind of late to do it. You know, you might uh, might have success, but I would probably do it in uh, like late October, early November uh, would be the best time. Uh, but just keep in mind that when when you do that, it's going to be a it's going to take it a few years to catch up on a tree that you bought and planted that already had some good height and size to it. So I guess I, I would more plan what tree I plant based on what tree do I want there, not necessarily what uh, tree has sprouted that I could dig up and move. But that that's totally your decision. But they, they would survive, do you think? If you did it now? Uh, no, just in general, I guess. Uh, oh, yeah, in general. If you go to late October, November, uh, when especially when the leaves are coming off of, well, it's a, you're saying it's a live oak, uh, that would be, that's a very low-stress time, and it's easy to move them, and it's easy to get them established in the new area. They have several months before it really gets hot, and they'll have had a root system starting to grow in. Uh, that's the benefit of trying to uh, do that in the fall rather than trying to do it now. If if you were really determined to try to jumpstart it, I would go ahead and try. Do it right away, water it in well, and take extra care to uh, keep the soil moist but not soggy, uh, especially as we move into this first summer. And by the way, if it were me doing it, I would, I would take two or three and I would put them in a container. Uh, not the same, not all in one container, but I would have me maybe three backups. And that way, if something, if the one you planted died, then you could, this fall, just put those backups in the ground and they would have already continued to growth and be bigger. Great. Thank you. Um, next question is uh, about hostas. So do hostas live here or is it just me? <laughs> uh, no, it's not just you. Uh, in, in general, hostas are one of those plants that we're stretching the zone too far on. You can have hostas here, uh, but um, there are a few varieties that do better than others, and I couldn't name them off the top of my head. A study was done by an agri-life horticulturist up in East Texas probably a decade ago where they tried a bunch of varieties and they had a few that did better than the others and they felt like that would be good. Uh, our area, it's kind of like, can you grow an azalea here? Well, if you create a acid soil by building a bed of peat moss and sand, and if you don't use your 
tap water but use rainwater, yeah, you can grow an azalea here. But that's going to great lengths. And so I think that you would probably be best avoiding the hostas unless you just have a reason that you love hostas and you want to find a way around the challenges. Okay. Yeah. My reason is that uh, at my mom's house, who comes and visits us from New Jersey frequently, she has beautiful giant hostas. So every time she comes, she plants hostas and they never survive. Yeah. So yeah. I, did, I didn't know if I was uh, doing it wrong. Yeah. Or, or they're just no. not meant to well, care. Well, cre- think of uh, trying to create a forest floor soil. So lots of decomposing organic matter. Uh, raised up so that it drains well when it's wet, uh, when we get a lot of rain. Um, Getting them in the shade, especially mid to late day shade, uh, is important, but all day really here. Uh, And then whenever you can water them with something other than tap water, like rainwater, that's that's better. Uh, But I, uh, you might be able to go online and do a search for hostas, uh, East Texas, and to use the word Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N. Keith Hanson did that study. And I, if it's online, that kind of search will pull it up to get you at least on your best chance. <laughs> Think of it this way. You're about to play Russian roulette. It takes a few bullets out of the chambers to give you a better chance. So we're trying to, we're trying to help. <laughs> Yeah, so I have every one of those checked off except for the rainwater. Okay. Uh, and they and they have uh, never, well, they, they come up and they're teeny tiny and they just look sad, so we plant other things. Uh, but that that's excellent, so thank you. And mm-hmm. then my, my final question is about figs, and it's, again, if I'm doing it wrong. Um, so we have uh, four fig tree slash bushes of two different kinds. One is celeste and one, I think, is LSU purple. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the problem that we're running into is that they never ripen in time before the freeze, if, if you know what I mean. So they, okay. they're, on, they're on the plant, they're alive, they're looking good, but they never like get ripe enough to eat hmm. before they get sort of killed and dry out and die. So is, is there any way to sort of help that along you know the the cold that we had in december was was really hard on a lot of our plants especially the marginal ones like oleanders and figs and things that are more likely to suffer cold damage than most of our other standard plants we have around the landscape uh it because it caught them unprepared they were they hadn't moved into a kind of a hardened off state ready for cold and so i i think i think that may be part of what's going on with your figs it the description you gave just doesn't bring to mind a specific cause other than maybe some issues with the winter cold uh do you have reason to think that may not be right um not particularly i guess what i was wondering is there's no such thing as thinning figs like you would do with other other fruits, right? So okay. Their energy? Okay. No, uh, there, there's not. And uh, I've had that ripening question come before. So figs can 
can produce, some varieties can produce two crops. There's a spring crop that came off of last year's wood, but then there's often a fall crop uh, that, that can, or it's a late summer crop that can come along, but that one never, often doesn't have a chance to ripen if it comes too late. Uh, I don't know anything else physiologically, disease or insect-wise, that would cause your figs not to ripen. Uh, maybe we've, if we've got any pomologists uh, listening from campus, uh, they might have a, a suggestion of something else. Uh, but I don't, I don't think there's anything in your power to do to make those figs ripen faster. Okay. <laughs> so I'll just, I'll just uh, wait and wish and hope and dream. <laughs> well, I think so. Uh, you've the two varieties you mentioned. LSU was it purple or gold? Pur- purple, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The, either of the two LSU figs and the uh, Celeste. Those are all good figs, and they will all grow here, and they will all fruit and produce here well. Uh, I like the Celeste best, but uh, if it's not ripening, something weird is going on. I, I'm gonna your your call has got me. Dan, interested? I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt down, uh, interview some fig experts and find out Excellent. if they have any other thoughts or ideas. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people in in the area and on the on the internet of podcasts would would appreciate a fig expert coming on. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll have to we'll have to do that sometime. All right. Well, well, thank you very much. Uh, you're you're as always excellent and a great resource for us. Thank I, you. Thank you. I appreciate the call. Our phone number is 979-845-5689. 979-845-5689. Or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Now let's just continue on here with some of the events going on around town. Uh, tonight, Thursday, April 6th, tonight at 6 p.m., the Post Oak Chapter of the Native Plant Society of Texas is having their uh, meeting at Lick Creek Park, uh, out Rock Prairie Road to the east of Highway 6. Uh, and uh, Cheryl Lewis, one of our master naturalists here in Brazos County, will present the program Invasive Plants, Silent Killers. And uh, it's free to attend 6 p.m. tonight at Lick Creek Park. Learn about some of the invasive plants. And I think you will enjoy the meeting as well as meeting all the folks there uh, in the group. Uh, also tonight, the gardens at A&M have a program that's going to be at the Larry Ringer Library on Harvey Mitchell Parkway. And that is on Rain Gardens, and it will be by Joseph Johnson who manages the gardens on campus there at Texas A&M. Joseph's a wealth of knowledge. He uh, managed Shangri-La Gardens out in uh, Beaumont area uh, and has actually been in the the nursery green industry for many years. uh, And now he's managing the gardens at Texas A&M. He's going to tell you about how to start your own rain garden. Uh, Rain gardens are a way to turn lemons into lemonade, by the way. You know, you got an area that doesn't drain well, and it seems like every time I talk about a plant, I say it needs good drainage. Well, rain gardens don't. These are plants that do well in that periodic flooding that we get when it rains a lot and then dries out again. So that is tonight, April 6th, at the Larry Ringer Library, and the time is 6.30 p.m. That's on Harvey Mitchell Parkway, south. Uh, 
next Tuesday, the Bryan College Station Rose Society uh, is having a meeting. And if you're interested and want more information on that, uh, call Mary. Uh, the number here locally is 680-8046, She can give you program information and direction uh, to where the meeting will be held next Wednesday. That'll be before we do this show again. Uh, let's see, 6.30 p.m., the Rio Brazos Audubon Society is going to have their program at the ba Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History uh, on Briarcrest Road on the east side of the bypass. Uh, Tyler Scott will be presenting a program on birding in Ireland. So if you want more details, one word, Rio Brazos Autobahn. And Autobahn's a tricky one to spell. It's A-U-D-U-B-O-N. A-U-D-U-B-O-N. RioBrazosAutobahn.org. I think there seems to be a lot of interest now in in uh, birding. Um, just, just a lot of... Uh, there's several reasons for that. Uh, but one reason is we are recognizing that um, the songbirds that and the numbers that we used to enjoy uh, in some cases are, are not uh, doing as well population wise uh, and there's ways we can take care of that uh, there's also uh, an interest just because it's a great hobby you know to get out and learn to identify birds by their sight or by their their song uh, I have not achieved bird ID by song status yet I I know the songs It's like I've heard that before but I can't tell you what it is. And I've had bird experts try to help me with the bird is saying what, uh, I need a wagon, I need a wagon or something, and I can't hear that in the song. In the song. So I guess I just don't have that talent. Uh, but anyway, it is a lot of fun. And so that would be the Rio Brazos Audubon Society at the Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Uh, let's see, on uh, next Friday, uh, the A&M Garden Club is meeting at 9.30 in the morning at Peace Lutheran Church on Rio Grande Boulevard. That's also right on um, the um, Harvey Metro Parkway, that in, near that intersection. Uh, and so what they're going to be doing is talking about language of flowers. They're, one of their members, Helen Quinn, will be giving a talk on that. Guests are welcome. It is free. If you want more details, amgardenclub.com. see a lot of things going on around town here. Uh, on the 15th of April that, uh, let's see, that would be Saturday, All Things Organic Gardening at Producers Co-op. Uh, Andy Chidester with Fox Farms is going to be talking about All Things Organic Gardening Saturday the 15th. Now, the programs at Producers are in their conference center. If you're used to going to programs at Producers that are kind of in the the building over in the garden section, uh, th this is different. It's a different building. They can direct you to it. And that's at 1 p.m. So that is available at 1 p.m. I think you, I think you will enjoy that. Andy uh, does a great job of, of uh, speaking and presenting. If you're out and about, uh, you need to stop by sometime. The Master Gardeners here in Brazos County, uh, they have a garden called The Dig, the Demonstration Idea Garden, and it's up on Highway 21 on the west side in Bryan, almost when 21 crosses 
2818, the, I guess you could call that the west side bypass. Uh, but anyway, uh, that will, those gardens are available to walk in and look at things anytime you want. Typically on some Saturdays, we have master gardeners out there working, and that's even a bonus because then you can visit with folks and pick their brain on the things that they've learned and how they're doing. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 979-845-5689, or you can reach me by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu uh, uh, Suzanne emails about uh, some roses that are really looking strange the older leaves are almost a bleached out bronzy color uh, which is is kind of unusual and I'm not familiar with any uh, nutrient that is going to do that I might check under the leaves Suzanne uh, it looks a little bit like it could be spider mites going on there. You might check for that. Uh, just put a white piece of paper beneath the leaf and then thump it with your thumb and forefinger. You know, give it a sharp thump and it'll knock some of the mites off if that's what's on there uh, onto the paper. And you see these little black, black reddish brown not black, reddish brown specks that are started moving around. Uh, and if you find mites, just a good blast of water from underneath the foliage upward is probably your best bet. You can also use insecticidal soap uh, to do the job as well. Uh, but I'm not uh, able to see past that uh, in terms of what might be causing it. Certainly welcome to bring a sample by the AgriLife Extension Office uh, during the week and I'd be happy uh, just leave it with your contact information there. I'd be happy to take a look uh, at that one as well. Oh man, well, we were talking about in the vegetable garden, uh, getting out and enjoying uh, the things that uh, are growing and the transition that we're going through out in the garden. Uh, I just want to encourage you as you're looking at planting a garden, especially if you're new to the area, uh, I created a little planting chart and it's available online. Uh, Master Gardeners have posted it online. You can stop by the extension office and pick one up if you like. but. It uh, is basically a calendar and it goes from January to February across the top of the page and down the left side are all the vegetables you'd grow. And then you see the bars as to the best time, an okay time, and don't plant it now. And that kind of helps you guide your planting times. And that's pretty important, um, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to have success in the vegetable garden, especially folks that move in from outside the area. It's, a, it, it's it really a good help. Uh, to get you going on the on the right foot. Uh, had a question that uh, came in, uh, let's see, from Rosina and Thomas, and the question is, what fertilizers are best for yopon trees? Well, I'm going to spread, I'm going to extend that question out a little bit uh, to cover more than yopon, but I'll answer for yopon. The best fertilizer for any plant depends on what nutrients are already in your soil. Now we, we generalize, we say things like plant, use a 312 fertilizer for your lawn, for example, because that's the nutrient ratio that plants tend, that lawn grass tends to pick up uh, the nutrients. Well, if you already had too much of one nutrient or not enough of another one, that general guide would be inaccurate uh, because your soil isn't regular soil. You need to 
you know, make some adjustments that are more significant. So anytime we point at any plant, whether it's citrus, tomato, fertilizer, hibiscus fertilizer, all of those, those are good general guides, but you, you should start with a soil test. And again, soiltesting.tamu.edu. So for a yopon, basically what we're looking at there is a, a green, an evergreen uh, plant, a shrub or tree, depending on what kind you, you put in. And so we would look for, again, that 312 ratio. I, I use lawn fertilizer for a lot of things around the, the lawn and garden. Uh, shrub beds and whatnot. But if you just take a lawn fertilizer uh, and use that for fertilizing your shrubs like Yopan, uh, I think that would be the best bet. So those come in many different numbers on the bag. You know, there's some that are strong. There's an organic, for example, that's a 624. Uh, there's some, some th synthetics that uh, go up as in even higher than 21714 uh, rate uh, nutrients. Uh, so it just depends on how strong it is as to how much you use. But I would go with a standard lawn fertilizer, and I think you're gonna you're gonna have the best the best bet uh, by by going that route. Uh, looking here through the uh, questions that we have, uh, do, do, do. I had a question that came in uh, from uh, Jesse. And uh, let's see, no, I've already answered that one. Excuse me. All right, here we go. I haven't, my thumb and is, I think I'm all thumbs trying to scroll through a computer here. Uh, Karen. Karen asks about controlling blackberry shoots that escape the primary raised bed. In other words, blackberries will spread underground. Uh, they have a rhizome that goes outward underground and sends up shoots. So that, that's how they are kind of invasive is they, they move out that way. So when you have those shoots and you want a blackberry row, not a giant bramble patch, which it'll develop into eventually, uh, you just want to cut those off and you can dig them up. Uh, you can spray them, but not until you've severed the connection to the mother plant. So for you to use a you know, a general purpose translocated weed killer like glyphosate, Roundup's the name people associate with it. Well, that's going to move back toward that mother plant and do damage. And so what uh, you need to do is sever them wherever you want the edge of your row to be uh, and or just dig them up. And I realize that's going to be a little bit of work, but that's just just part of the of the situation. They are going to reappear uh, and there's not just a spray that just kills that shoot. Uh, it's going to leave the rhizome under, underground unfazed, and they'll just pop right back up again. And when they get underneath things, I think uh, Karen has a plum tree. You know, when they get under a, a, a like a her Mexican plum tree, that that's even harder to you know try to dig them out. And just another reason to make sure they stay in the, where they're supposed to be uh, in the in the original beds. I love blackberries, but they can be a little bit of a uh, unruly uh, creature. So, um, I want to comment on something. Uh, I get a lot of versions of this question, and basically, there are a lot of products on the market that are not fertilizers, uh, but they they will use names like growth enhancer or 
bio, I can't even, I'm trying to think of examples, but there are claims that, that aren't fertilizer claims. And the question is, do they work? And first of all, the word they includes a wide variety of things. So uh, some may work, some may not. And, and, and that's the first thing to think about. Uh, but the other thing is when, when you have a fertilizer, the state actually requires you to certify or prove what is in your fertilizer. And they, they, can, they can take a sample and analyze it. And if you put three numbers on a bag, I mentioned uh, 624, for example, or 15510, that has to really be in there. And so when you buy a fertilizer with those three numbers or more numbers than that on the bag, you have a certain assurance that what you're buying is what it says it is, okay? When you go into uh, nutraceuticals or other kinds of uh, supplement claims, there's not that uh, careful analysis and prove it works, prove what's in it or whatever. And so it kind of gets to be a little bit of the Wild West, if you will. Uh, there could be a product that works perfectly well, but in that category, until we get some research proof that it works well, then you're left with, you know, just hoping or with somebody's testimonial uh, that it worked well. And so I guess that would be a case of let the buyer beware. Uh, again, I want to be careful not to just throw shade over the whole everything that's not a fertilizer. It's just that there's a wide variety and uh, people can put a lot of things on the market and just make it a biostimulant or some other thing like that. And, and using terms like that don't really tell you exactly what, what it is. I know I'm spending a little time on this one, but uh, people often have that question. And I'm, I'm avoiding using examples, plant or uh, product names and stuff, because I think it's better to just address this in a much larger uh, um, spectrum than just like an individual product, for example. Uh, now, you, you can do some of that evaluating yourself. It won't be a replicated research version. But if you have uh, several plants and you try something on, and they're all the same, by the way, growing in the same soil, same conditions, and you use something on one plant but not on another, and then on an, then you use it on a, the next plant down the row but not on the other, for example, then it gives you a view of how well did that work. And I would do that for more than one year. And uh, if you want help in, in making a better uh, test, we can help you with that, the AgriLife Extension Office. But then you prove to yourself whether you think it was worth your money. And I think that's, a, that's kind of a good thing because where we are right now is that those kind of products don't have the rigid testing and analysis that uh, a fertilizer would have. I hope that helps a little bit. Our phone number, 979-845-5689. This is an interesting day. I figured with everybody being cooped up with rain inside, <laughs> with phones would be ringing like crazy. Some days they ring like crazy and some days they don't. But anyway, so I guess what that means is this is a good time to get in, in on the lines if you want to call. Uh, our phone number, 979-845-5689. And by email, success at tamu. Dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu
Uh, I had uh, someone uh, earlier questioning about uh, tree planting, and when you plant a tree, uh, you know what are what are the tips to success for it? And I think the first of all, choosing a species in some cases a variety that is well adapted to our area would be number one. Uh, you may love blue spruce because you went to Colorado and had a wonderful vacation. Don't bring them home. <laughs> the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Plants is going to meet you at the Texas state line and take it away from you. <laughs> I wish they would. Anyway, adapted plants are important if you want to have success. Digging a hole no deeper than the root cylinder of the plant you bought. You know, they, most people, most plants are coming in a black round container and it has a certain depth of media in it. And so when you pull it out, however deep that is, that's how deep the hole is. If you dig it deeper and throw in soil on the bottom, it's going to then settle and it'll be at the wrong height. You want to find the topmost root on that tree and you want to plant it so that topmost root is right at the soil line. When after you finish planting and covering it up, it's at the soil line of the site where it's growing, okay? And so that's, that's very important. When you pull it out of the container, it's going to have circling roots. And there are different ways to deal with that, uh, some more extensive than others, but at least go around the root cylinder and make a vertical cut from the top of the soil down to the bottom to sever any roots going in a circle. I use a box cutter knife, you know, to do that. Their little inch long blade works pretty good. You can use pruners or whatever, but do it in, in three or four places around the plant just to make sure you get those because circling roots don't straighten out underground. But what they will do is get bigger and bigger as your trunk gets bigger and bigger. And next thing you know, you've got a strangling root around that trunk. And that's a real big problem to deal with. So I think those, those tips are are among the better ones uh, to, to consider, more the most, more important ones to consider when you're planting a tree. Uh, I, uh, you know, watering it during the first year is critical. And it, there's a, think about, think about it this way. In the garden center, that tree in the cylinder pot was watered once or twice a day to keep it adequately hydrated so the leaves don't start shriveling up and falling off. Uh, that's a limited root system. So the only way that tree could get a drop of water is if you put it in the pot. Uh, that's different than in the soil where you have a huge soil volume and it can draw on those stored reserves. I like to call it the bank account in the soil, the bank account of water, bank account of nutrients. So when you plant the tree, the first week, two weeks after you plant, the roots are all still right there. I mean, they're, they're, if you cut them, within two weeks, fresh new roots will be growing out into the soil. But that's where all the roots are. And it was getting watered once or twice a day. So we kind of have to keep doing that for a little while. Now, you don't want to get it too wet. You don't want it to be a swamp. So we don't put 10 gallons of water on a little one-gallon tree. Uh, but you do want to keep it moist. And gradually, you can wet a larger area. Uh, but that, that's important. There are devices. There's a little sprinkler called a tree hugger. You hook up to a hose and it, it goes around the tree and it waters right there. And that can be helpful for a little easy to do. 
you can also, and this, this is something I've always done, is put a donut of soil around that tree, meaning you have this little berm and you sort of create a reservoir there and you make that wider than the root system you planted. So, you know, if, it, if you put in a container, let's say it was, you know, 16 inches across or something, I would probably go out to about 30 inches, make the berm of soil and then when you fill that berm with water, it all soaks straight down. It has nowhere to go and running off. If you stand there with a hose, it's gonna, you're going to think you're soaking it, but the water's going to be running off to the sides, and you're not going to get the good deep soaking. So the berm is a good way you can see right there how much water you're putting on and keeping it moist. Now, as we get further into the season, you know, you don't water it every day. You, you're watering it every other day at some point, and then... For that, you're watering it a couple times a week. And then you may even be to the point, uh, as we get really hot in the July, where uh, once a week is enough. But just be careful to gauge it. And most of all, realize where all those roots are. And so uh, it could be moist soil in that whole area, very moist soil. But you've got a tiny cylinder that pumps dry. And slowly water wicks from the soil into it, but not fast enough to keep that plant healthy and, and growing well. So I hope that, uh, I hope that tip uh, is, is helpful for you. Uh, trees are valuable. They're a, they're a part of our landscape that uh, can add hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to the value of your home, depending on home, depending on the tree. And it's so important to pick cultivars and species that do well. Uh, almost every time I get asked for a recommendation for a tree, the request starts like this. I would like a fast-growing tree that, and then finish the sentence. And just know that with very few exceptions, a, a tree that grows fast tends to fall apart or die young. A tree that grows at a moderate speed or a slow speed may often be a good long-term species. That's not 100%, but that's a good good guide. So ignore the fast growing. Pick a moderate growth rate, which all our recommended trees, the ones I would recommend, the ones AgriLife would recommend, are going to be that kind of, of tree. And then take care of it. Get it. I just described how to get it planted and get it through the first summer. Uh, do some fertilizing, light fertilizing of it over time to provide a little extra nitrogen, support a little bit of more growth. Uh, and most importantly, get the grass away from it. If grass goes up to the tree, you're going to hit it with a lawnmower, hit it with a, a string trimmer. Uh, but if grass is just around the tree in general, it is getting the first shot at every drop of rainwater and the, most of the nutrients in the upper uh, area of the soil. And so it's a, it's a dramatic difference. I've seen uh, a pecan planting that was done in a Bermuda, had a Bermuda grass area field, and they killed all the Bermuda in one area. The other area, they left it. It was just kind of kept down a little bit. And after just a few years, the difference was over 100% in terms of the growth of those trees, not having to compete with that grass all around them. So if you go into a forest, you kind of get your picture there. There's leaves everywhere, and there's not grass to be seen in the forest. And that's what the tree wants. So, uh, you know, if you can keep your mulched area as wide as the branch spread, even better, a little bit wider when the tree is young, 
uh, you will have the fastest growth rate just from that alone uh, that you're going to get uh, in terms of getting that. Here we go back to the email, I need a fast growing tree. You're going to accomplish that with a quality tree. And 40 years from now, it will be a beautiful mature tree. Uh, not something that the limbs are breaking off because it has bad branch angles, not something that is prone to disease and insect issues that are that are thwarting it. Uh, so things like Bradford pear, uh, most of the ashes, the Arizona ash and, and the, most of the ashes are, are going to fall apart when they hit a certain age. About the age, they should be a giant, stately, beautiful plant uh, that you're having trouble with them. So so choose carefully. You can call your county extension office. Uh, the Texas Forest Service, uh, A&M Texas Forest Service, has a website with a lot of good information on uh, choosing trees. And uh, there's a tree selector that's very helpful, a, a tree planting diagram that's very helpful uh, on their website. Uh, I would recommend that you take advantage of those and, and get you a good one. Uh, it's a decision. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like having kids or getting married or something. I mean, you're making a decision that is going to affect a lot of years of your life there, right? And so you want to make a good decision. The, the tree choice is, I say, almost one of the most important ones you make in your landscape just because they're so long-living. You know, and their and the the value they add to your home. Well, sounds like I've been sponsored by trees today. But anyway, they've asked me. Actually, they did. They asked me to talk to you, and to tell you these things so that that you would do this right when you take care of them. Well, let's say you're listening to Garden Success, and our phone number is nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. I was thinking about herb gardens earlier this week, and, and I've had some questions about uh, how, do you, how do you grow herbs or what are herbs that grow well here. And um, I, I want to say... Traditional herb gardens are beautiful. You know, the geometric shapes and, and all of that, that's great. That's fine. But for 95, maybe 99% of the people listening, uh, that's not what you're going to be willing to do or able to do or want to do. Um, and But herbs can be used all over the place. I have herbs growing in containers all across the back patio. Uh, I have herbs at the ends of my vegetable rows. I like, imagine this, you got a row of tomatoes and at the end of the row there's a little space, you put some oregano there and just let it sprawl around like a ground cover or maybe a clump of chives at that location or it could be other things. Uh, so you can include them in. Some herbs are really attractive landscape plants. Um, uh, the um, rosemary, for example, is a very drought tolerant plant. Uh, there's a trailing type of rosemary that could spill over a, a planter wall, uh, or, you know, if you have a, a landscape that is not just flat and level, uh, there, there are uh, the chives can be very attractive in a landscape. There's an herb called pineapple sage that has pretty red flowers, especially late in the season that could be used. But mix your herbs in. Uh, use them uh, as an ornamental plant. Uh, 
use them as a little ground cover, like I mentioned, some of them. Uh, but, but include herbs wherever you wish to. And of course, we grow herbs for the, the benefit in, in terms of cooking, seasoning our meals and things like that. Uh, the certain cuisines just demand certain herbs. For example, if you want to make a pesto, well, you better be growing basil. You can go buy it at the store, but basil is easy to grow when it's warm, and it's getting warm now. Uh, so uh, basil would be an herb that uh, I would put out. It's an annual herb. For, uh, and I, I enjoy growing basil. There's a lot of wonderful types of basil that you can grow. Uh, but don't think you just have to have an herb garden uh, to have herbs. They're easy. Herbs are among the easiest vegetables to grow, or plants to grow. Uh, I guess I shouldn't call them vegetables. Uh, if if uh, I were to give one more kudo to herbs, it would be that on a lot of herbs, the little blooms that they produce are a uh, help to not only bees, but other beneficial insects. Uh, I was uh, looking at some thyme blooms the other day and saw these little tiny parasitoid wasps going in and getting some some nectar. And uh, so that is another benefit. So you got aphids around your landscape. Those wasps lay eggs in aphids, and uh, you want to take care of them. Those wasps don't eat aphids. Uh, they they depend on, on that little nectar source there uh, for them to survive well. I guess nectar and pollen, probably both. Uh, so think about that when you're when you're out shopping in the garden centers. By the way, right now is a great time to be at garden centers. Uh, they've got good supplies of all kinds of things. If you're a vegetable gardener, if you just want flowers, uh, if you want some perennials and color that you can add to your landscape. Uh, you know, visiting the uh, um, uh, different garden centers here around town. And, and out from town uh, that just, it's just, it's an exciting time to get out there and garden. Uh, prepare yourself first before you go shopping for plants because, you know, you when I get to a garden center, I see a lot of things I want to bring home. But I better have a place for those things before I bring them home. I, you can water them around, take care of them for a few days, of course, but uh, take care of the soil first. Soil is the foundation of success. And the most important thing you do, whether it's a vegetable garden, a flower bed, you name it, is to create a good soil for those plants to thrive in. When you do that, they make you look like a great gardener. You got their back, they got yours, right? So a good quality soil means adding compost. It means doing a soil test, finding out the nutrients you need, uh, and preparing it ahead of time, building up raised beds because it does rain too much sometimes. Uh, and if the area is a heavy clay and somewhat low-lying, beds are just essential uh, unless you do the rain garden idea where you plant plants that like that kind of soil. But preparing the soil first, then bring your plants home and, and, and put them in according to what you like. Uh, there are so many good plants. I would say at this point in time, uh, certainly you can find the things like the petunias and zinnias and everything that's out there. But think about summer, and so things like an angelonia, um, the uh, something called Lobularia, the Stream Series, one of our Texas superstars by Texas AgriLife Extension. Uh, the Stream Series of Lobularia is white blooms. Think of a lissom. That's what it looks like. And uh, spilling over the sides, but able to take the heat. Start thinking about plants like that, because when the hot weather really gets here, then they're going to continue to grow and perform 
uh, well for you. If you got kids, please get them involved in your garden. Uh, the um, uh, probably the easiest things from a floral standpoint would be to grow some zinnias for cut flowers because not only do they get to grow the plants themselves, but they can make the cut flowers and take them uh, inside for your home, uh, give to mom, or they can go to a neighbor and give them, or, or grandma, or relatives, uh, and it just kind of gets them involved. Same thing with sunflowers. There's some really, really nice sunflowers that uh, are beautiful uh, that your children can grow, but get them involved in growing squash, growing green beans, very easy plants to grow out there in the garden and uh, they can have success because when when they grow up their connection with nature is a big part of their life quality going up being able to eat right uh, appreciating uh, the fact that uh, I can grow this and I therefore I'm more likely to eat it and uh, sets them up for health and just the well-being of being out in a garden it's a, it's a good thing uh, we want to get away from uh, you know, all the sterile environments that society now lives in and move toward one that's more in contact with nature uh, and also just the educational value of the wonder of nature. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter, and we'll be back next week, Thursday, 12 to 1, with another show. Remember that these are available also by podcast, so check with your podcast provider for Garden Success. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.